Blood, Sweat, and Fear is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus. The series is based on her best-selling books, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, Cold Case Vancouver, and Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arson, and a charismatic killer. I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Blood, Sweat, and Fear. It's the story of Inspector John Vance, Vancouver's first forensic investigator. The first three podcasts in this first series each focused on one major crime that Vance helped to solve. And the rest of the podcasts in this series will continue to focus on one case per episode. But I thought I'd change things up a bit here and focus on Inspector Vance himself. During his 42-year career, Vance helped detectives solve hit-and-runs, safe-crackings and some of the most sensational murder cases of the 20th century. His skills and analytic abilities were so effective that in 1934 there were seven attempts on his life and for a time he and his family were under constant police guard from criminals who were afraid to go up against him in court. Much of the information for this episode came from Vance's personal diary for 1934. He'd packed it away when he retired and it hadn't been opened or read by anyone until I came across it in 2017. It took me several weeks to decipher his horrible handwriting, but when I'd finished, I had a fascinating history of police corruption that led all the way up to the chief of police. The letter arrived in Inspector Vance's lab on February 13, 1934. It was crudely printed on a sheet of dirty paper and it said, lay off or we'll bump you off. The rest of the message was unreadable. Vance phoned Deputy Chief John Murdoch, who told him that police officers often receive such letters and that he shouldn't worry. Vance filed the letter away in his drawer. A phone call followed. Lay off, Vance, or your life ain't worth a dime, said a male voice before hanging up. On March 5, 1934, a second threatening letter arrived at the police station. It was also addressed to Vance and said, keep away from Sturton and Wolfe's trial. The letter had a lot of badly spelled swear words and instructed Vance to wear a white flower if he decided to be smart and stay away from the courtroom, and the letter was then signed the gang. Vance ignored the instructions and showed the second threatening letter to Deputy Chief Murdoch. Again, he was told not to worry. Cunningham Drugstore was eventually sold to Shoppers Drug Mart, but in 1934 it was a chain of 12 stores. In the early hours of Sunday morning, January 7th, the store in the Vancouver block on Granville Street was robbed of cash and drugs. The robbery was discovered at 4.30am and within a couple of hours, police had suspects firmly in their sights. A career criminal named George Sturton and Reginald Wolfe, a 25-year-old taxi driver. Wolfe had rented a car from the Moonlight U-Drive which was later seen outside the drugstore at the time of the robbery. A few hours later, it was found parked in the lane behind Sturton's apartment in Vancouver's West End and quickly traced to Wolfe. 
Sturton had just been released from jail two months before after serving an 18-month sentence for possession of nitroglycerin. When police raided his home, they found a bag of burglar's tools in the garden, a wrecking bar on a fence ledge outside his door, and inside, a steel punch and a dummy safe combination, and a key that fitted the basement entrance to the Vancouver block. They also found nitroglycerin, morphine, cocaine, and strangely, a bottle of Vaseline hair tonic, all taken from the drugstore. Before credit cards and debit transactions, most businesses kept a safe where they could put the day's cash receipts. Safe crackers or yeggs, as they were known, were skilled in the use of highly dangerous explosives. Nitroglycerin was known as soup and was the favoured method, but just a drop of the fluid could blow off a hand and a small jar's worth was enough to set off an explosion that could crack a safe. Vance had testified at Sturton and Wolfe's preliminary hearing earlier that year and they knew that it would be Vance's scientific evidence at their upcoming trial that would put them away. The day after the second threatening letter arrived, someone rang the doorbell to Vance's lab. There was no one there, but he could see a man running down the stairs. Others reported seeing men hanging around the hallway. The following day, Vance ignored the advice from the deputy chief, and he began to worry. Vance collected his mail from the general office and took it back to his lab. He put aside some letters and picked up a bulky-looking parcel and started to untie the string. He happened to glance at the printed address. The bad handwriting immediately reminded him of the writing on the threatening letters that he'd received. Then, with his usual patience, Vance slowly removed the string and unwrapped the package. Inside was a small box used to hold handkerchiefs that contained a crude but effective homemade bomb. Two wires and a detonator were fixed in such a way that if the string had been broken or jerked, the bomb would have exploded, killing Vance and taking out a chunk of the building and many of the people with it. The cardboard handkerchief box was traced back to Cunningham Drugstore. Chief John Cameron had two iron grills installed at the top of the stairway leading to Vance's lab. The doors were locked at 6pm and opened again at 7am so that no one could enter during those hours without a key. The second attempt on Vance's life came less than a week later. At around 10pm, Constable Duncan Fraser was on duty at the Vance house when he heard an odd sound coming from the back of the house and he went out to take a look. He couldn't see anyone, but he heard the sound of running footsteps. He ran to the front of the house, just in time to see a man disappear into the thick bush of the vacant lot next door. When he checked the basement, he saw one of the windows had been tampered with. There was nothing taken or placed inside, but the incident put police on high alert, and Vance was given a police driver and a bodyguard, and another police guard was placed on the house. Shortly before midnight on the following Friday night, Detective Parsons was patrolling the grounds of the Vance residence when he noticed the distinctive smell of burning powder coming from the back of the house. Going to investigate, he saw a red glow from under the window of Vance's home office. Detective Parsons ran over to the burning fuse, whipped out his pocket knife and cut off the end. The fuse hissed for a few seconds and died. Throwing a beam from his flashlight, he saw that he was holding a piece of burned-out fuse about the length of his arm. 
A shorter piece was still attached to a tin can containing black powder and rags and then buried in the soil under the house. When the Cunningham drugstore robbery trial started, newspaper headlines such as Vance Escapes Bomb Plot and Death Parcel for Scientist had made Vance into a celebrity. People packed the courtroom wanting to see how scientific evidence could help to convict the safecrackers. City detectives and uniformed police officers spread out to keep the crowd under close surveillance. Vance entered court under police escort, and when he wasn't giving evidence, he sat flanked between detectives William Grant and Harry Dugan. Vance explained that he was called to the crime scene at 10 o'clock on the morning of the robbery. He found the room littered with wet towels and coats, which had been used to deaden the noise of the explosion. The first exhibit was a door of the drugstore's safe. Vance demonstrated the use of nitroglycerin in safe blowing and showed the jury how a homemade dial puller found the day of the robbery near Sturton's West End apartment had been used on the safe door and how the screw bolts of the puller fitted into the marks on the safe door. Vance told the jury that the brass dial of the safe had been pried off with a chisel and a screwdriver. He took out a large magnifying glass and asked the jury to examine the piles of earth, flakes of mica, a fragment of brass, smears of paint on the door and dial of the safe as he reconstructed the robbery for them. Under the magnifying glass, Vance showed them how a tiny piece of brass metal found in Sturton's handkerchief fit into the safe's dial, which had been chiselled open. He showed them that the screwdriver found at Sturton's home still had a small flake of the brass attached. Vance produced some flakes of red paint that he'd scraped from the right knee of Sturton's pants. The paint was identical to that found on the dial puller. Among the exhibits were a bundle of rags, a pair of shoes and two pairs of gloves which he found in a small hole behind a toilet in Sturton's apartment. The items were wet when he found them and the shoes and one rag bore traces of mica. One of the biggest exhibits was a seat taken from the rented car that police believe was used by the safecrackers. Vance told the jury that he found cinders and ash on the seat. The fusion of these ashes was unusual, he said, and were the same as those found at the rear of the store. Vance produced pieces of the burned fuse found in the drugstore, as well as two similar pieces with two live detonators attached. Police had found these in a hedge alongside Sturton's home. Sturton's lawyer told the jury that either his client was framed or he was the dumbest client ever for leaving all the evidence lying around. It failed to sway the jury. They deliberated for less than 10 minutes before bringing back a guilty verdict. Sturton was sentenced to eight years for breaking and entering, two years for having explosives and another six months for having drugs in his possession. Wolf received five years. On Sunday, April 22, 1934, there was another attempt on Vance's life. Vance and his family were coming back from church when he turned into his drive and his car's headlights caught a man running across their yard and then disappearing over the back fence. When Vance went inside to call police, he found that the telephone was dead. Young Tom Vance was sent to the neighbour's house to use their phone, and when police arrived, 
they found the wires leading into the house had been cut and a basement window forced open. Police told Vance they thought it was the work of burglars trying to break into the house. A few months later, Nanaimo Crown Prosecutor Arthur Layton wrote to Vance requesting his assistance. Several safes had been blown in Nanaimo, a town on Vancouver Island, over the past year, and he wanted Vance to examine the safes and the tools which had been seized. He also sent Vance envelopes containing dust and pieces of fabric that were found at two of the robberies, as well as clothing from the suspect's house. George Hannay was charged with possession of dynamite and burglary tools, including a stolen stonemason's hammer. George Hannay, the suspected safecracker, was a former provincial police officer who had once had a distinguished career acting directly under the chief constable of Nanaimo. In 1913, he left his wife Alan and their two children and took off to California with 23-year-old Mary Catherine, the Catholic daughter of a local barber. While there, he served a 15-month jail sentence for forgery and was then deported back to Canada where he faced another three years in jail for misappropriating government funds. Once he served his time, George stayed in Nanaimo where he transferred his skills into safecracking. It wasn't a great career choice because he just wasn't very good at it. George spent most of the 1920s in jail for a variety of offences that included breaking into a drugstore in Port Alberni. 1934 was a busy year for George, who was now 53 years old. He was suspected of blowing a safe at Bucketfield's warehouse and also suspected in the Nanaimo and District Farmers Cooperative Association robbery. He was also a person of interest in the robbery at Pearson Sales, where the safe was cracked with nitroglycerin, lard and a double six-foot length of bell wire attached to a percussion cap. The explosion had blown the safe door through two glass partitions and landed 40 feet away. For all their trouble, the safe crackers made off with just $11. While the robbers wore gloves and had not left fingerprints, George had been seen casing the warehouse with his associate, William Jones, just a few days before the robbery. Shoe imprints found at the crime scene were the same as those found at the other two robberies. When police searched George Hannay's house, they found 321 sticks of 60% dynamite, a Listerine bottle of nitroglycerin, 60 detonators, some with wires attached, as well as a number of tools, including an auger. George explained that all the materials were used in his mining operations. The Nanaimo Free Press announced that the Crown had retained Inspector Vance's services to testify against George Hannay. After hearing Vance's scientific evidence at the preliminary hearing, George, who was representing himself, reserved his defence and was taken to Ocala Prison Farm to await his trial the following October. There hadn't been an attack on Vance's life for several months, so when the brakes failed on his car at Oak Street and 25th Avenue and he just missed crashing into a streetcar, he chalked it up to mechanical problems. He didn't tell police right away, but he described the near miss in his diary that night. I put my foot lightly on the brakes. It was just the slightest touch. Immediately the car skidded sideways and swerved this way and that, and finally swung around in a complete turn. It was almost as if I jammed on the brakes on a wet pavement. A little before 9am the next day, 
Vance went to the garage at the back of his house. He got into his car and tried to start it. The engine refused to turn over. Vance found that it would only run for a second after he took his foot off the starter. He was startled when his eldest son, Jack, came running from the house yelling, Dad, there's something under the car. Vance leaped out and saw that there was a lighted fuse. He ripped it off and put out the flame. The fuse was attached to a small package of explosives hidden under the gas tank. Someone had tampered with the car's engine, so the fuse, which was stuffed up the exhaust pipe, would light when the car started. Vance tossed the package and fuse into his backyard and called police. He and the detectives took the package to a vacant lot near the house. They relit the fuse and ran for cover. They watched as the flame reached the package and then exploded. Detectives found that Vance's garage had been broken into the night before and the bomb attached to the car's undercarriage. The seventh attempt on Vance's life also happened at his home. It was on the Monday of the Thanksgiving long weekend. Vance was working at the lab and came home for an early dinner before heading out again to catch the steamer to Nanaimo, where he was scheduled to give evidence at George Hannay's trial. When Vance got out of his car, he noticed that a window in his garage had been left open. As he stretched out his right hand to close the window, a man who'd been crouched below waiting for him jumped up and hurled a jar of acid at his face. Instinctively, Vance threw up his hands to protect his face just before he felt the liquid splash his hands and clothes. His screams brought Ethel Vance running. She called for their son Tom to phone police and helped her husband back into the house. She put water and baking soda on the burns. A few drops of acid had penetrated through Vance's fingers and burned his right eyebrow. But the worst burns were on his legs. The acid had eaten through his trousers, which now hung off him in shreds. The burns on his left knee and both hands and legs felt like they were on fire. Sergeant McAfee answered the police call and was at the Vance home within minutes. He immediately saw the seriousness of Vance's injuries and put Vance in his police car and rushed him to Vancouver General Hospital. Vance was treated in emergency and later moved to a private ward where a police officer stood guard all night. Police found the jar which contained the sulfuric acid under the window of the garage. They also found a crudely printed note on a wrinkled piece of paper that was pinned to the wall of the garage. Vance's name was at the top left-hand corner. Underneath, someone had drawn a skull and scrawled the words blindness. It was signed, warning of Hannay's pals. Even after the failed bomb attempt two days earlier, Police guards had not been stationed back at the house, and Vance was still without a bodyguard or a driver. In fact, it had been months since Vance had any kind of protection. The latest attack made page one of every daily in Vancouver, Victoria and Nanaimo, and reporters camped outside the hospital. Vance, still swathed in bandages, was sitting up coaching police officers on how to collect and preserve evidence at his home including what was left of the suit that he was wearing, which would need to be sent away for testing. Police investigated a list of people who'd been sent to jail through the efforts of Vance's science. They'd all been checked and released. 
The chief said an armed guard would be placed over the Vance home 24 hours a day in three eight-hour shifts. Vance would be under police protection everywhere he went. But while the public chief John Cameron appeared to be taking a tough stance, Vance's diary tells a different story. Stories were circulating that the detectives were jealous of all the attention that Vance was getting for his work and of his newspaper headlines, and Vance was starting to believe that the attacks on his life may be an inside job, maybe even coming from the chief himself. While Vance was recuperating, George Sturton, the man thought to be behind the earlier attempt on his life, sent word from prison that he felt that he'd received a fair deal at his trial and that Vance was correct. Vance knew that Sturton was originally from Nanaimo, and he was an old pal of George Hannay's. Vance also knew that the two safecrackers had recently reunited in prison. George Hannay's trial was moved to a later date to give Vance time to recover. He left for Nanaimo under police guard, but before he did, he went to his car and found that the papers and notes that he'd placed in the door pocket in preparation for his court testimony in Nanaimo had all been stolen. In his diary, Vance writes that when they boarded the Princess Elaine for Nanaimo, he was asked to put his black bag with the ointment needed to treat his burns in the chief steward's room. Later, at the Malaspina Hotel, he applied the ointment on his burns. He wrote in his diary, As my legs pained, I loosened the bandages and applied new ointment from the can that I had received from the hospital in Vancouver to my legs and my left hand. Within a short time, both legs started to burn. I walked the floor until about 4 a.m. My legs, head and arm began burning at a terrific rate, and the pain became unbearable. By the next morning, Vance's wounds were blistered, and one of the police guards took him to Nanaimo Hospital. While Vance believed the ointment had been tampered with on the boat, he was determined to continue on as a principal Crown witness in the trial against George Hannay that afternoon. As expected, the courtroom was packed. Those that couldn't get seats were jammed in the corridors to try and hear Vance's testimony. As was his habit, Vance slowly and methodically took the jury through his evidence. He showed them that the material taken from the cuffs of Hannay's trousers contained mica, red brick, fire brick, particles of wood, silica sand, oxidised metal and flicks of rust. These materials, he said, exactly matched the substances taken from a pigeonhole in the safe. Vance showed how a splinter of wood found in Hannay's coat pocket fit into the floorboard taken from Pearson's and that the shreds of cloth found on the premises contained the same dye, the same dust and the same pattern of threads and fit exactly into the rips in a suit taken from George Hannay's home. Hannay's defence lawyer, J. Edward Bird, was also staying at the Malaspina Hotel. Vance wrote in his diary, A continual stream of more or less disreputables were coming and going to Bird's room. On Wednesday night, Bird was heard to tell Tom Moore, the main witness for the defence, that Hannay was sunk, that the prosecution evidence was too strong. Moore and the others must get something, trump up something at any cost, otherwise Hannay was lost. The next morning, the crowd got some unexpected drama when Bird said that the Crown's main evidence, analysed by Vance, was all made up and that the jury had a lot of false evidence crammed down their throats. From Vance's diary. I was the first witness at 10am. 
and I was immediately subject to cross-examination by Bird for an hour and three quarters. He was exceedingly dirty, and showed by his cross-examination that he had knowledge of the papers that were stolen from my car. After deliberating for less than two hours, the jury announced that they could not agree. Eleven voted for conviction, and one, which Vance notes was a friend of Hannay's, voted for acquittal. Vance wrote, The Eleven could not move this man who appeared to be the foreman of the jury. I protested to Mr. Layton, the prosecutor, the fact that Hannay would be free on a $2,000 bail until the spring court session, and I did not like the prospect of his being free to direct more assaults against me. He stated that nothing could be done in the matter, and it would have to take its course. George Hannay approached Vance after the trial and told him that he didn't have anything to do with the throwing of acid at Vance, but that he couldn't be held responsible for the actions of his friends. And as it happened, he wasn't. It would be a couple of years before George Hannay was caught again and sent back to jail. This is Eve Lazarus, and you've been listening to Blood, Sweat and Fear.